Please flip over now to Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I about said Philippians 1, but we are done with Philippians 1. We are firmly now in Philippians 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. And as I've enjoyed doing the last several weeks, I'm going to do again and regale you here with a story from Charles Spurgeon in the year 1854. He was pastoring in London at New Park Street Chapel, preaching week in and week out. And it was recorded that as he was preaching, the auditorium in which he was preaching was growing dangerously crowded and, as I've read, unbearably hot. So he pressed his deacons to open the windows to allow for more fresh air during the service and to also make plans to expand. But his deacons dragged their feet because they did not wish to make any changes to their historic building. A biographer noted that Spurgeon lost his patience with his deacons over the matter. And later in his life, this is what Spurgeon recalled. He says, one night... While preaching there, I exclaimed, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, and by faith that wall in the back shall come down too. He recalled that an aged and prudent deacon, in somewhat domineering terms, observed to me at the close of the sermon, Let us never hear of that again. What do you mean, I inquired. You will hear no more about it when it is done. And therefore, the sooner you set about doing it, the better. The biographer of the incident recorded that though Spurgeon may have been right, he didn't always communicate with perfect wisdom and patience with his deacons. I do not advocate such relationships in the church, but I share that illustration to say Tension can easily be a reality in the life of any church, even in blessed churches under blessed ministries. Spurgeon wrote extensively about his relationships with his deacons. He called them the undervalued sons of the church, that they were the blessing and even the means by which his ministry was thriving. But that illustration reminds us that tension isn't always or only possible, but it's actually always been a part of the life of the church. And the reason tension or conflict, or even as I'll say later more explicitly, division is a part of the church, is because though redeemed and saved, we're still imperfect people, aren't we? And fallen people. And as is painfully evident for any of us who examine our own hearts, we too frequently lose sight of what's actually important in life. We too easily confuse our preferences with what is right and what is best. Things like pride and selfishness and as one commentator wrote, preoccupation with personal interests. Those things are characteristics too commonly found among God's people. And because they're too commonly found among God's people, because we still wrestle with our flesh, 
the threat, in fact, the constant threat of disunity or, dis, or, or division or tension or conflict or bitterness or resentment is always knocking on the door. Indeed, too many pastors feel more like referees than leaders sometimes. The church, even our church, must always be on guard against infighting and division. It is a constant threat, and it's of such importance that I believe if division is allowed to spread and take root in a local church, it will spell the end of that local church. It's evident not only in history, but even by my own experience. That there are many churches who have allowed division to take root, and though they meet together regularly, truth be told, they are no more a church than the local Rotary Club. Division destroys a church. And because of that reality, the subject of unity and the subject of disunity is important for the church to hear and consider and contemplate and meditate upon and recommit herself to constantly and regularly. And so the New Testament has much to say repeatedly about the importance of the church being unified. And I'll confess even personally This is a subject that occupies my mind regularly and recently alarmingly. The last few weeks I have vaguely tried to give you my assessment of current events in the world. And I haven't done that to attempt to instill fear, but rather to try to produce clarity concerning reality and prepare us to respond appropriately. So the last few weeks I've told you things like I think Christianity is on the way out of our country. And that for the first time since the records have been kept, American Christianity is now the minority position. It's been the minority position in reality, but now it's the minority position in professing and in people admitting. Now 49% of Americans identify as religious in any term, or any way, 51% identify as not religious whatsoever. And I shared a few weeks ago, one writer on the subject I agree with said, America is now officially a pagan nation. I've also told you that the church has, in my estimation, entered into a period in our culture of of hostility that she hasn't experienced before in America. Where it's not only the minority position, but it's also the attacked position in our country. Even our neighbor to the north is doing things and perpetuating things upon the church in Canada that 10 years ago would have been unthinkable. The extent to which they are going to shut down churches is alarming. But of all the negative trends in our country, our society, our context, those things don't give me the greatest concern. What gives me the greatest concern or strikes me as the most troubling thing 
is what I perceive to be the major division taking place in the American church at large. Not only are we now the minority, but we're even splintering and fracturing as the minority. Which means not only is the majority of our country and context against Christian values and biblical teaching, but we can't even come to agreement within ourselves. It doesn't take long to survey any secular publication or Christian publication to find the bickering and the harsh treatment and the denouncing of others. And perhaps even most alarming is how quickly it's taken place. In the span of one year, those ministries and individuals we once regarded as faithful brothers and sisters are now denounced as heretics and unconverted liars. Even worse is that such infighting and division and bickering that's taking place on a grand scale in our country has now trickled its way down into the average church among the average Christian people. So that average churchgoers now are fighting fights that aren't their fights and attacking people they don't even know. All in the name of defending truth, protecting the gospel. Are we not concerned how quickly we give ourselves in to negativity and complaining? Just recently, Lifeway Research confirmed my fears. They conducted a survey in January of 2021 and released the results. 49% of pastors surveyed admitted that they frequently hear their church members repeating conspiracy theories in the church and out of the church. That doesn't count those who infrequently still hear it, but frequently, 49% of pastors hear their church members espousing conspiracy theories. The last time Lifeway was able to conduct an in-person survey was in 2019 before the pandemic. And that survey revealed that 55% of Christians in the six months prior to the survey was conducted, had been conducted, 55% of Christians admitted that they had not told one single individual how to become a Christian. And we put those two surveys together and we, we take the year in between out because the pandemic did a whole bunch of weird things. And we look at those two numbers and we ought to be majorly concerned. It tells us that the American evangelical church today is more apt to share conspiracy theories than they are to tell people about the gospel. They're more apt to propagate circumstantial evidence than what they believe to be actually true. Then, we also realize that anytime pastors try to speak out against these things that they perceive to be unhealthy practices among their people, 
they are being regarded as opposing the truth. I have visited with too many pastors in western Oklahoma in the last six months who frequently have their church members trying to persuade them to jump into this movement or that movement or that thought or this bandwagon. And when they don't, they are labeled as not standing for Christ. I share all of that To say Happy Mother's Day. No, not really. I share all of that to to be honest with you, church, to say I am woefully concerned that tension in the church today is at its climax. Where members are resisting members. Church members are fighting against church members. Believers are fighting against believers. Churches are fighting against churches. And pastors and church members are even set at opposite ends of the spectrum from one another. And that ought not be so among God's people. The pastor is not against the deacons. And the deacons aren't against the pastor. And the Christian isn't against the Christian. And the church isn't against the church. Those, let me be as clear as I can be, are tactics of the enemy. Satan knows, sometimes better than we do, the truth of what Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So here's my warning. Nothing serves the enemy's agenda better than division in the church. And what's What makes it all more difficult is how personal it quickly becomes. Examine your own heart and ask yourself, when was the last time you simply sat down with another Christian and did nothing but rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ? Or are you more apt to complain, bicker, focus on the negative things of the world? If that's the case, I would contend the influence of the world has had a bigger impact on us than we want to admit. It can be hard sometimes to assess our lives and be truthful concerning the last time I just sat down and boasted on Christ and told of His saving power. Just loved on a brother or a sister concerning the good news of Christ and the glories that Jesus would forgive us. Too many times those conversations are too far and few. Paul knows the importance of disunity and its destructive nature in the church. And so we come to chapter 2 and that's where he turns his attention. He repeats over and over in this letter the need for church unity. And he's repeating it again here in chapter 2 with a very important distinction. 
at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he's been calling the church to unity in the face of the opposition of the world. Uh, remember in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that these other things would be true of you. So that you will um, also in verse 27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind that has the military overtones of resisting the advancement of the military. Of, of the uh, enemy. He also says in verse 27 that you should be proactive, that the church should be proactive, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And verse 28, not finding anything by your opponents. He's focusing on the church's unity against and in the face of their opponents. But as he comes to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he's concerned with the church's unity in face of her own division and tension. We have to have unity if we're going to prevail against the opposition of the world. And we have to have unity together if we're going to survive our own conflict and internal disagreements. And so that's where he turns his attention. He calls the church, the believers in verse 1 and in verse 2, to this certain kind of unity in their own midst, even if there's tension within the church he tells them how to accomplish that practically speaking in verses 3 and 4 and he tells them why in verses 5 through 11 they should live that way because of the example and source of Jesus Christ himself who humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant becoming obedient even to the point of death he says essentially look to the example and source of your savior who humbled himself out of the interest for others and you do likewise because remember in this church, chapter 4, verse 2, there is tension. Paul loves this church with all his heart. And we've seen that in chapter 1. But this church isn't perfect. There's internal conflict. He names the internal conflict in chapter 4, verse 2. Euodia and Syntyche, they're disagreeing. And he says they need to agree in the Lord. And so before he gets to that explicit command, he addresses the general need here of unity in the midst of a church's fracturing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I found this quote from Sinclair Ferguson to be very helpful in regards to this. I'd like to read it before we get into verses 1 and 2 this morning. He says, Unity in our fellowship is essential to our witness. There are several reasons for that. One reason is that the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace with God. How can non-Christians be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we are not reconciled to each other? Another reason is that disunity always has the effect of turning a Christian fellowship in on itself, wasting energy on itself. When we devour ourselves... In that way, we have little energy left to be shining light and preserving salt in a needy world. And it's with that understanding of the importance of unity, we turn to Philippians 2 this morning. Look with me in verse 1. Let's cover verses 1 and 2 today. 3 and 4 next week. And maybe 5 through 11 for the next year. We'll see. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He begins here with what we could call the four ifs or the foundations for unity. We might also call them uh, the blessings of grace. Now these four things he reminds these Christians of are to produce certain effects in them or certain results in them. And they're common things. They're things that all Christians should enjoy together, share together, possess together at all times. The first one he says is encouragement in Christ. And some translations expand that a little bit to say uh, if there's any encouragement in being united with Christ. I certainly think that's fair. That's what's implied by Paul. It's more than just having feel-good feelings about knowing Jesus. It's substantial benefits of having a relationship with Jesus. So he writes to this church and he says, if, not that he's questioning, it's, it could very easily be the word since or because, since there's any encouragement in Christ or because there's any encouragement with Christ, it's a, it's a rhetorical if. But if there's any benefit whatsoever, any traces of a benefit in belonging to Jesus, then certain results ought to be evident among you. There are absolutely benefits to belonging to Christ, right? Salvation. Peace with God, Romans 5.1. No condemnation, Romans 8.1. Strength. Hope. Joy. Peace. Well, that list is virtually endless. There are benefits to belonging to Christ and so he says, starting with this very one, the most foundational thing to your unity is your union with Christ. Indeed, church, we have no real lasting unity together if we're not all unified to Christ first. But the point here is, if we are unified to Christ, then there ought to be other things that are just as true like our unity together. Secondly, he says, if there's any whatsoever, any trace of comfort from love. Some Bibles, again, might insert the word His. Comfort from His love, meaning Christ, tying back to Jesus. That word His is not in the original language. It's totally based on interpretation. I don't think that's a fair word to place in the phrase. I don't think that's exactly what Paul's saying. Because he uses the word love in so many ways throughout this letter. He primarily, mostly talks about his love for them and their love for him. In chapter 1 verse 9, he's prayed that their love would abound more and more. And he tells us that ultimately all of our love together is founded on the love of Christ. But the fact that Paul uses love in such a wide array, wide variety of ways, I think means we should take this phrase more generally. If we have any comfort whatsoever from any kind of love we share, then certain things should be produced within us. 
if we have comfort from our love with Christ, if we have comfort from uh, our love with each other, from your love to me and my love to you, if there's any inkling of genuine love with each other, and any comfort from that, then again, certain results ought to be produced. Thirdly, he says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, he's used that word participation before in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. The word is koinonia. It can also be translated in the New Testament as fellowship. In extra-biblical writings, it means business partnerships. He's used the word partnership, or it's translated in verse 5 of chapter 1 as partnership. It means um, more than just being together. It means deep transactional commitment. In other words, it means we both have a vested interest in, in a singular goal. Now, when Paul uses it here in connection with the Holy Spirit, he's saying if there's any deep transactional investment in the Holy Spirit together, then certain results ought to be produced. That's an important point to make. When we consider the way that we each have possession of the Spirit, it elevates our participation in the Spirit together. For instance, you don't have part of a possession of the Holy Spirit, and I have another part possession of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we both have whole possession of the Holy Spirit. You have a whole possession. I have a whole possession. She has a whole possession. God doesn't give part of Himself to us. He gives him whole, His whole self to us. Which means our commitment, therefore, then, to the Holy Spirit, to God Himself, isn't part commitment. It's a whole commitment. And so we are wholly committed to God together. And if we're wholly invested in the Spirit, wholly fellowshipping in the Spirit, wholly partnered or participating in the Spirit, then certain results ought to be produced. Fourthly, he says if there's any affection and sympathy, hallmark traits of the character of God that the Bible says ought to be evident fruits of the people of God. That word affection almost seems redundant, doesn't it? He's already talked about love, but what does he mean by affection? He means sincere acting out of that love. It's not just love in terms of internal commitment. It's affection that boils up and boils out, which means I can't help but smile when I see you come because I have not just internal love, but affection for you. A sincere desire, a sincere Longing, a sincere wanting of your, uh, your good in life. Remember, we're not just to put up with each other and strive to like each other. We're actually to have affection for one another. By the way, in a world that so lacks affection, that means something to us, doesn't it? He couples this last phrase with another word, sympathy. That word can also mean compassion or gentleness. When it's coupled with affection, it has the idea of being quick to extend mercy and grace to each other. 
He's saying if there's any trace whatsoever of affection that produces compassion and gentleness and mercy and grace and sympathy for each other, if there's any trace whatsoever of it, certain results ought to be produced. Essentially, with these four things, Paul's reminding these Philippian believers that the Christian faith is a transformative faith. And it's a transformative faith that touches every part of our lives. And these four things that he mentions specifically are common, ordinary traits of the Christian faith. Of course, we have benefit in belonging to Christ. Of course, we should have comfort from love in the church. Of course, we participate together in the Spirit. Of course, there should be affection and sympathy together. These aren't miraculous things per se. They're ordinary things. And they produce, produce certain results. Certain fruit. What is that result and what is that fruit? It's in verse 2. Verse 2 is the command in the text. And it begins with a personal appeal from Paul. Now the result is unity. If these four things are true, even, even remotely, then it should produce, must produce, will evidence itself by producing unity. But this unity Paul makes in Intensely personal. Because the Christian faith isn't abstract. It's a personal faith that deals with personal people. And has personal effects in personal relationships. And so he says, if any of that is true, then complete my joy by being unified. Paul's joy, at least partly, is tied to their growth in the faith. Specifically, their unity. We understand this when we have mutual friends with somebody and, and we enjoy spending time together in that mutual friend group. But two of the friends are at war with each other. They're fighting. And it makes hanging out awkward. And so we're grieved when our mutual friends don't get along with each other. Or our spouse and maybe our best friend. It burdens us. Paul's saying, I can't have joy if the people I love are at each other's throats. If disunity, if you guys are fractured, how do I have any joy? If you look back into chapter 1, verse 25, he's told us that part of his delight and desire in living is for their growth. They're good. He says, convinced of this in verse 25 of chapter 1, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, my joy is tied to your spiritual good. And your spiritual good is being in unity together. Bound together. Just a side note. True love for God's people rejoices at unity amongst God's people and is broken over disunity at God's people. If you look at a church or the larger church and see it fractured and in turmoil and divided and it doesn't burden your heart, 
you may not truly love God's people. True love for God's people desires God's people to be unified and it's burdened when they're not. That's exemplified in the Apostle Paul here. So he says, complete my joy. This is a personal deal, not just a set of rules. Complete my joy by being unified in a certain way. First, he says, by being of the same mind. The word he uses for mind here, he uses ten different times in this letter. And almost every time it has a different meaning. It can mean feeling. It can mean the mindfulness. It can mean the attitude. It can mean take a certain view on a certain point. It can mean think. It can mean set your mind on something. It can mean concerned about. He uses the word twice in this verse alone. Although some translations will translate the Last phrase of the verse differently. He uses the same word again in verse 5 in reference to our connection to Christ. Have this mind of humility and this mind of considering others more significant than yourselves. Which is the mind of Christ. Have that same mind among you. He uses the word in chapter 4 verse 2 when he tells uh, Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The word agree is the same word he uses here for mind. So we have to step back and say, okay, what do you mean then by this word? Well, I think Walter Hansen summarizes it best. He says, this spectrum of meanings indicates that this verb speaks of the dominant attitude and settled disposition of the entire person. In other words, simplified. Paul says, be of the same mind. He says, let your entire person be of a certain settled disposition together. If we take the word and we say that it means the word, or it means to think, which I think at its most basic way it does, it, Paul is telling us then to, to think alike. But not to think alike like clones but to think the same way about the same subject. Now, we don't all think the same way about everything. And that's a good thing. God hasn't created us to be clones or to think identically. Rather, the Bible tells us we are to think the same about the gospel and Christ Himself. It doesn't matter how we view the world. It doesn't matter what we think about X, Y, or Z. We are to have the same mind when it comes to Christ and His message of salvation. Utterly, wholly, totally devoted. Priority number one. If I could labor to tell you anything this morning, it would be that there are many things distract, distracting us, vying for our attention, seeking our time and our efforts. And as such, threatening unity. But church, we are to have the same mind about Christ. About the Gospel. Fixated on exalting Jesus in this world. Everything else, everything else is of secondary nature. 
He also says in verse 2, I want you to not just have the same mind, I want you to have the same love. In chapter 1, verse 9, he's prayed for their love, that their love would abound more and more. Here he gives them an explicit command. I want you to pursue the same kind of love. It's no longer a praying, but a direct imperative. Which means on one hand, Paul knows that the entire church is dependent upon God to have love for each other. And on the other hand, he knows it's the responsibility of each one of us to fight for love. To put forth the effort to care for each other. Now again, in chapter 2, verse 5-11, through 11, he's going to show us this kind of love is exemplified in Christ. In verse 3, he's going to show us practically it means not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit. In verse 4, he's going to tell us it means to look out for the interest of others. He's going to elevate the standard of what it means to love. The Bible as a whole tells us the kind of love Christians are to have for each other is of the highest priority. Jesus says in, in chapter 13 of John, verse 35, that it's the very witness that the church bears for Christ Himself. In 1 John chapter 4, John tells us it's directly connected and evidence of our own salvation individually. In fact, I have to read some of that because he's better at saying it than I am. Just read a, a verse or two or three or four here. He says in, at the end of the chapter, verse 19, we love because He first loved us. If anyone says... I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father Loves whoever has been born of the Father. It's not a, an option for the Christian to love the people of God. It's the very evidence of our own personal salvation. The very command of God Himself. It's the very witness we bear to a dying world. And so it's embodied in the things Paul highlights in Philippians 2. Self-denial, sacrifice, humility, faith in Christ. Essentially, he's telling them, you must complete my joy by being unified. And you cannot be unified without loving each other. It won't exist. It won't endure. If you don't love in both word and in deed. Commitment and action. Well, thirdly, he says that we are to be, in verse 2, full, in full accord and of one mind. I like how the New American Standard Bible translates this phrase. It says, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. It's a, a fuller explanation. Because to be in full accord does mean to be of one spirit or united in one spirit. We found that phrase used in verse 27. And just like in chapter 1 verse 27, it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to our spirit. It literally means... Bound together in the soul. 
harmoniously. It's a very deep sort of unity. It's a very deep sort of commitment. The Bible has a lot to say about how Christians relate to each other. It calls us brothers and sisters. It calls us partakers of the Holy Spirit. It calls us fellow laborers. But I don't know that it conveys any better picture of unity than being bound in the soul with each other. That's a, in my estimation, a miraculous description. Because it doesn't happen without the miracle of salvation. It doesn't happen without being united with Jesus. And it doesn't happen without a heart that's changed to commit itself in relationship and time and effort and dedication to a whole group of imperfect people. But it's that very harmony of soul church that dispels and protects the church from disunity. If division rises up within us, it's likely because we have forgotten that we are bound in soul by Christ. He bookends verse 2 with that word again for mind that the New American Standard Bible translates intent on one purpose. He does so as an emphatic reminder, a sense of repetition to drive home the point. I like what Walter Hansen says. He says about that word at the end of verse 2. He says, divisions can be overcome only by taking on a common yoke and pulling together in the same direction. When believers are preoccupied with their own personal agenda, well, they will pull in different directions and split the church into separate interest groups. But being of one mind means more than simply being agreeable. It means agreeing that Jesus Christ is Lord and submitting to His Lordship. Paul's reminding us that we're making a conscious decision to be unified, and we're unified around the truth of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. We'll learn later, like I said in verse 3 and 4, what this looks like. But for now, for today, this is what the Apostle Paul is telling these Philippian believers. He's reminding them of what they possess together. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. And he then tells them that such things, if they're true in a person's life, yield certain fruits of unity in the church and amongst God's people. And that unity is built in the mind around the same goal of the gospel on the power of love and it results in a one-souled people living for the glory of God. And anything different jeopardizes our witness, spiritual health and our growth, our ability to glorify God. In fact, it would be sin. As we come to wrap up this morning, I believe each person must ask himself or herself whether or not they actually know the love of God and if that love has led them to love God's people. I think that every person, myself included, needs to examine our hearts. 
do we lead others toward the love that's supposed to mark the church of God? Or do our conversations, our relationships, our interactions, do they give birth to negativity? Do they give birth to division? Do they give birth to disunity? Is our salvation evidenced by the building up of God's people in love? I began with a story of Spurgeon. Let me end with a quote from Spurgeon. He says, Your own spiritual beauty may be very much measured by what you can see in other people. When you say, There are no saints now, where no one is following God, then it is to be feared that you are not following God. When you complain that love is dead in the Christian church, it must be dead in your heart, or you would not say so. As you think of others, that you are. Out of your own mouth shall you be condemned. How we think about others matters to God. How we treat others matters to God. How we interact with each other provides assurance or lack of assurance of our own salvation. Unity isn't just a nice thought for the church to exist in and to entertain from time to time. Our very survival by God's ordination in a hostile world and in the threat both without and within is dependent upon our committed unity. Father, all wise and all knowing, masterful in every way, would you bless us and grant us this day a supernatural unity that as opponents from outside threaten us and beat on the doors and attack us, we would stand together firm in the faith, striving together side by side, not frightened in anything. And as the enemy, wicked and evil and dark as he is, tries to stir up division within, creating tension and conflict, breeding bitterness and resentment, would you remind us that we are a one-souled people made so by our Union with You, Christ. Living now to glorify You together. Would You grant us the unity by which we stand or fall. That we may stand in a world that needs light and salt. Displaying the power of the Gospel. Bound together in thought and commitment and soul. For your glory, Jesus, we pray. Amen.